0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. That's what I want to do tonight. That's what I want to do tonight. Remind you of the gospel that I and many others have preached to you which you've received i pray you've received and on which you've taken your stand i'm going to do that by asking and answering four questions who made us what is our problem what is the solution and how do we get included in the solution who made us what is our problem what is the solution and how do we get included in the solution First, who made us? Greg Gilbert paints a picture, a truly modern picture, the way many people see God today. He writes, let me introduce you to God, lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know. He doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the one he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared about what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life has moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job, it's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right. Hold on a second. Okay. We can go in now. And don't worry. We don't have to stay long. Really. He's grateful for any time he can get. Is this the God who made us? Is that the God who made us? Is this the God who's there? The scriptures teach us God was there before the beginning. God was there before the beginning. Once there was only God, only God. No one, nothing else. The scriptures teach us the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In creation, God went public with his glory. So nature doesn't merely establish the existence of God, it declares the glory of God. The word glory is one of the richest, deepest, most sophisticated terms in all the Bible. It's so difficult to convey a good definition of it. In the original language, it means weight, heavy. When we say God is glorious, we're saying God is weighty, heavy, consequential, important, significant. Ignore at your own peril. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What's the most spectacular natural phenomenon you've seen or experienced in your life? Swiss Alps? Hmm? Rockies? Grand Canyon, the aqua blue waters of the Caribbean, a powerful storm. There's something about the power and the grandeur of creation that calls out to every human heart and it says, You are not all there is. We are not the result of random chance and genetic mutations. We are created. Every one of us is the result of an idea, a plan, and an action of God himself, which brings both meaning and responsibility. None of us is autonomous. And understanding that fact is key to understanding the gospel. Despite our constant talk of rights and liberty, we are not really as free as we'd like to think. We are neither self-reliant nor self-accountable. We are created. We are made. And therefore, you got this, folks? We are owned. You're owned. Because he created us, because he owns us, God has the right to demand that we worship him. Second question, what is the problem? Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul indicts humanity. God had the right to tell us how to live, to honor him, to demand that we worship him. He's got the right because he owns you. And Paul says, we've not done that. We've not honored him. We've not glorified him. We've not lived as we ought to live as created beings. We've departed from that. Now, was that such a big deal? Was that such a big deal? Was it such a big deal that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? Just a piece of fruit. Was it such a big deal that fleeting lustful thought or that careless word of gossip? That such a big deal. One pastor muses about that. He writes, I just paid a parking ticket the other day. It was easy. I read the charge against me, flipped the ticket over, checked the box that said I plead guilty to the charge, filled out a check for $35 to the Metropolitan Traffic Citation Department, sealed the envelope, dropped it in the mail. I'm a convicted criminal. For some reason, though, I don't feel that way. Even though I checked the box guilty, I don't feel terribly guilty. I'm not going to lose any sleep over this. I don't feel like I need to ask anyone's forgiveness. And now that I think about it, I'm even a little bitter that the ticket was $10 more than the previous one I got. (laughs) Why don't I feel bad about breaking the law? I suppose it's because when you get right down to it, breaking a parking regulation just doesn't really strike me as being all that important. Yes, I'll be sure to drop an extra nickel in the meter next time, but my conscience isn't exactly torn up over the whole thing. And then he writes this, one thing I've noticed over the years is that more and more people seem to think of sin as not much more than a parking infraction. Yes, of course we think technically sin is a violation of the law handed down by God on high and all that, but surely he must know there are bigger criminals out there than me. Besides, nobody was hurt and I'm willing to pay the fine. And come on, there's no need for a whole lot of soul searching over something like this, is there? Well, I guess not, at least if you think of sin in that cold way, but according to the Bible, sin is a lot more than just the violation of some impersonal, arbitrary, heavenly traffic regulation. It's the breaking of a relationship, and even more, it's a rejection of God himself, a repudiation of his rule, of God's care, of his authority, and his right to command Those to whom he gave life. Exodus 34 verse 7 says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, strictly speaking, these first two points are not really good news at all. Pretty bad news. That I have rebelled against the holy and judging God who made me is not a happy thought. But it's an important one because it paves the way for the good news. And that makes sense if you think about it. To have someone say to you, I'm coming to save you, really isn't good news at all unless you believe you actually need to be saved. So what's the solution? Romans chapter 3, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. You see that word, but it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word. It's small, but it has the power to sweep away everything that has gone before it. Coming after bad news, like we just heard, it has the power to lift the eyes and restore hope. More than any other word, it can be spoken by the human tongue. It has the ability to change everything. Think about it. The plane went down, but no one was hurt. You have cancer, but it's easily treatable. Your son was in a car wreck, but he's fine. Paul says, but. In spite of our sin, he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's a way for human beings to be counted righteous before God instead of unrighteous, to be declared innocent instead of guilty, to be justified instead of condemned. And it has nothing to do with acting better or living a more righteous life. It comes, how? Apart from the law. So how does it happen? Paul puts it plainly in Romans 3.24. Basically saying, despite our rebellion against God and in the face of a hopeless situation, we can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, because of his blood and his life, sinners may be saved from the condemnation our sins deserve. The early Christians understood this. This was a message that was proliferated throughout the first century church. Galatians chapter three, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Second Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter chapter three, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Matthew writes that darkness covered the land for about three hours while Jesus hung on the cross. That was the darkness of judgment. The weight of the Father's wrath falling on Jesus as he bore his people's sins and died in their place. You see the significance of this? Ultimately, it means that I'm the one you should have died, not Jesus. You're the one who should have died, not Jesus. I should have been punished, not him. And yet he took my place. He died for me. They were my transgressions, mine, yours. But they were his wounds. They were my iniquities, your iniquities, but it was his chastisement. It was my sin, but it was his sorrow and his punishment brought me peace. His stripes won my healing, his grief, my joy, his death, my life. So how do we get included in the solution? The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel are succinct, clear, and world-changing. He said, repent and believe the gospel. You want to know how to get included in the solution? That's it repent and believe the gospel. Two words we need to understand, repentance and faith. Very simply, repentance is turning away from sin. It's turning away from it. It's hating it, resolving by God's strength to forsake it even as we turn to him in faith. So Peter told the onlooking crowd, he said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Apostle Paul in Acts 26, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. See, repentance is not an optional plug-in to the Christian life. It's absolutely crucial to it. It marks out those who've been saved by God and those who have not. Now, repenting of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you stop sinning, certainly not altogether, and often not in particular areas either. We're still fallen, even after God gives us spiritual life, and we continue to struggle and wrestle with sin until we're glorified with Jesus. But even if repentance doesn't mean an immediate end to all of our sinning, you know what it does mean? It means we will no longer live at peace with our sin. We no longer live at peace with it. We declare mortal war on it. And we dedicate our lives to resisting it by God's power. William Arnott put it this way. He says, The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. One of the first things I look for in pastoral situations with people when I'm trying to determine whether or not they've come to true saving faith in Christ is their attitude towards sin. Attitude. What is the posture? What is the mental posture before their sin? I want to hear them say they hate it. They hate it. Oh, they hate it. That's repentance. You hate it, and you declare war on it. The other part of Jesus' solution is faith. It's repentance and faith. It's turning away from sin, turning to God, hating your sin, declaring war on it, and turning to Jesus in faith. In Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indy, Harrison Ford, faced three tests. Final one's a leap of faith. Remember it all? You got it all? You got the picture? Leap of faith. He's got to retrieve the holy grail, right? Indy comes to this large chasm. When initially looking down into a bottomless pit, there's nothing there, right? There's no bridge to get him across. Only after what happens, what does he do? He closes his eyes, he purses his lips, takes a deep breath, wells up enough faith. Does the bridge appear? He steps and wow, it's there. It was his faith that created the way across. It was his faith that made the bridge visible. How often do you see that caricature of faith? Italian theologians have a sophisticated term for that. It's called bologna salami. (laughs) Read the Bible. You'll find that faith is nothing like that caricature. Faith does not create Saving reality. Faith is reliance on a reality that's already there, grounded in truth. But what exactly are we relying on Jesus for? Let me put it very simply. You want to know what you're relying on Jesus for? Here's what you're relying on for you're relying on Him. To secure for you a righteous verdict from God, the judge, rather than a guilty one. You got it? You're relying on Jesus to secure for you a righteous verdict from God, the judge, not a guilty one. The Bible teaches that the greatest need of every human being is to be found righteous in God's sight rather than wicked. So when the judgment comes, we desperately need a verdict pronounced over us, righteous, not condemned. This is what the Bible calls being justified. It's God's declaration that we're righteous in his sight rather than guilty. And how do we secure that righteous verdict? The Bible tells us plainly, it's not going to be by asking God to look at our own lives. That's a fool's errand. If God is ever going to count us righteous, he's going to have to do it on the basis of something other than our own sinful record. He's going to have to do it on the basis of someone else's record. Someone who is standing as a substitute for us. That's where faith in Jesus comes in. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are relying on him to stand as our substitute before God in both his perfect life and his penalty paying death for us. In other words, we're we're trusting that God will substitute Jesus's record for ours and therefore declare us to be righteous. Righteous. I heard a story some years ago that illustrates this. There was a a father, a young father, who was trying to teach his very young son uh, to swim. And uh, it turned out to be a dramatic chore. This little guy didn't like getting his face wet in the bathtub, let alone put him in a massive ocean of a swimming pool. Now, at first, the goal was just to kind of get him to splash around on the first step. Maybe you could get him to to purse his lips, blow some bubbles against the water. Eventually, dad got to convince him to walk around the shallow end with a death grip around his neck. But dad was after something more, the biggest step, jumping off the side of the pool. So dad lifted him up. Put him on the side of the pool. He said, Come, jump. And the little guy just frowned. He said, No, I go see mommy. (laughs) Well, dad did what every dad does in that moment, and that's break out the bribes. (laughs) Various bribes. Various bribes. Convinced him, try it again. Come on, kiddo. I'm right here. I'll catch you. I promise he looked at dad skeptically. He did one more little wind up bouncing at the knees and then just kind of fell into the pool. More of a flop than a jump. Of course, dad caught him. What happened after that? They're off to the races. Do it again, daddy, do it again. And so commenced an entire hour of this. Jump, catch, lift, reset. Jump, catch, lift, reset. When it was all over, uh, he and his wife started to Worry that maybe their son had actually become too comfortable with the water. What if he wandered to the pool and no one was there with him? Would he remember all the times he'd safely jumped into the water and decide that he had this pool thing whipped? Would he jump again? Over the next few days, they watched him around the pool and what they saw really comforted them. Never once did this little boy think about jumping into the water at least not unless dad was standing underneath him with arms out, promising to catch him. And then he'd let it fly. See, despite all his apparent successes, the boy's trust was never in his own ability to handle the water. It was in his father. And his father's promise, come on, kiddo, jump. I promise I'll catch you. Putting your faith in Christ means that you utterly renounce any other hope of being counted righteous before God. You find yourself trusting in your own good works. Faith means admitting that they are woefully insufficient and trusting in Christ alone. You find yourself trusting that you uh, what you understand to be your good heart. Faith means acknowledging that your heart is not good at all and it's trusting in Christ alone. To put it another way, it means jumping off the edge of the pool and saying, Jesus, if you don't catch me, I'm done. I have no other hope, no other savior. Save me, Jesus, or I die. That's faith. So when you stand before God at the judgment, I wonder what you plan to do or say in order to convince him to count you righteous and admit you to all the blessings of his kingdom? What good deed or godly attitude will you pull out of your pocket to impress him? Will you pull out your church attendance, your family life, your spotless thought life, in fact, you haven't done anything really heinous in your own eyes? What will you hold up before him while saying, God, on account of this, justify me. I'll tell you what every Christian whose faith is in Christ will do by God's grace. They will simply and quietly point to Jesus. And this will be their plea. Oh, God. Do not look for any righteousness in my own life. Look at your son. Count me righteous, not because of anything I've done or anything I am, but because of him. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserve. I have renounced all other trusts and my plea is him alone. Justify me, oh God, because of Jesus. Let's pray. Have you done that? I know what you hear out there. I know what you hear out there. I know what you're tempted to believe tempted to believe that this life is all about developing a moral resume you work hard you get all the stuff on there and you're going to present that to god one day in hopes he'll admit you into his paradise i know that's what you're tempted to believe that doesn't go far it won't be good enough Precisely why throughout the history of Christianity, Christians have made such a big deal of the cross. Have you renounced all other trusts? And are you looking alone to Jesus to secure you a righteous verdict before a holy God? If you haven't done that, now's the time. Talk to God. God, it is not my works. It is not my religious performance. It is not the label I wear that gets me right with you. I am far more wicked and evil than I can compensate for. It is the perfect life of Christ lived in my place and his spotless sacrifice dying in my place. That's what I need. So, God, we relish this, we bask in it. This is exceedingly good news. And we worship you for it. We ascribe praise to you for it. We look to Jesus. We lift him high for it. In his name alone. Amen.